Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. pleasure it gives us pleasure to play curtis mayfield to you for any reason and we have very good reasons today in fact we're going to talk to you about flies <laughs> we're not going to talk to you about the subject of that song or movie we are going to talk to you about flies uh we have so much material to cover uh, that i have had to make some ruthless decisions uh, about how we're going to do it uh a little bit later in the show you're going to meet uh our favorite uh, entomologist gail ridge from, from right here in connecticut she's been on the show many times before she's going to even tell you you know how you can do detective work with uh, with the aid of flies. We're going to talk to an artist who who basically makes art out of what flies regurgitate onto his canvases and other surfaces. Uh, we're going to talk to you about somebody who's an expert in Jeff Goldblum's performance as the fly in the fly. The uh, what is he, what was he called? The the Brundle fly. I think that's what he was. Uh, but the, our main guest today is Jonathan Balcom, uh, a biologist and the author of six books. His latest is Superfly: The Unexpected Lives of the World's Most Successful in, uh, Insects. And uh, Jonathan Balcom will be with us for the first two segments. He'll uh, be talking to Gail Ridge and to the artist who uses the regurgitation of flies. Uh, but right here at the beginning, I think we need to establish some of the real fascinating and complex stuff about flies that make up the meat uh, of a lot of this book. We're going to talk about how they fly, how they see, uh, how they make sexy time, and whether or not they have consciousness. At minimum, we will get get to all that today. But I was thinking, who can? how can we possibly even tackle such a big topic? We need a very, very wise person to help us with that. Uh, and so I had this idea. Hey, wouldn't a fly swat be easier? Man who catch fly with chopstick accomplish anything. You ever catch one? Not yet. Can I try? If wish. Hey, 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 Mr. Miyagi, look. begin a luck. <laughs> All right. Well, Mr. Miyagi can just do just about anything, but he can't catch uh, uh, flies with chopsticks. And in fact, there are some pretty good reasons for that, including the chopsticks. But uh, Jonathan Balcom is going to tell us a little bit about why, in fact, flies 
Before we even explain to you what counts as a flyer, we should just tell you some fun stuff about them. So, um, Jonathan Balcom, one of the, the great things you do in the book uh, is explain how flies fly, uh, which is, of course, what they're known for. Uh, and, um, I mean, it really is sort of remarkable. If I were bringing a design for a brand new fighter jet to the Pentagon and it could do what flies do, what kind of jet would I be showing them? What would it be able to do? Hi, Colin. Hi. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, that's a really challenging question. I'm not a physicist or biophysicist. Uh, you know, I'm a synthesizer, and yeah. so I drew from all sorts of sources for this book. But what struck me when I when I was learning about how flies fly is is analogies to a car engine uh, with different gears and levers and and little ridges that click and pop across each other. And this marvelous, I mean evolution which has the luxury of millions of years to hone her craft and her designs so to speak uh, has come up with amazing solutions for things and flies wings can beat over a thousand times per second in some of the smaller species and to do that i mean nerves just don't fire that fast so this remarkable anatomical tricks that evolution has come up with to enable a, a little animal like that to, to beat wings that fast yeah, there's this incredible description in your book about uh, how flies have evolved a complex system of levers, fulcrums, tiny knobs on wing vein stretch activation mechanisms, and a system much like the manual clutch on a car's transmission linked to a sort of gearbox that enables them to control each wing independently. Uh, and, and it goes on from there, uh, which explains some of their maneuverability, some of the difficulty Mr. Miyagi is having catching them. But one thing we could say, at least, is if I brought my fighter plane to the Pentagon and claimed it could do what a fly could do, that would mean it could hover, fly backward, and land upside down, correct? That's right. But also, you might, you might, not, want to, you might not want to mention to them that there's, there's a fly with asymmetrical wings. It's the only known flying animal where one wing is different shape and slightly bigger than the other, which leaves, you know, leaves us scratching our heads. Why on earth you think that wings, the first priority is to be efficient and they need to be the same size? It turns out that, um, that it appears that the males have that asymmetry in the wings to impress females that look I look how great I am, even with this handicap. That's one theory anyway. So the other difficulty with catching flies or hitting flies or whatever it is you want to do with flies is that they're rather aware of the efforts that you're making uh, to get them. And we're going to talk about their eyes in just a second, but it doesn't necessarily start with their eyes, right? It starts with bristles and hairs uh, on the fly. Tell us about those. Yeah, flies are pretty hairy beasts. And in fact, scientists who name new species, and there's many, many, there's hundreds of thousands of species undescribed, rely on details such as uh, such as bristles and hairs and the location and how many and what shape and that sort of thing to to identify or identify a new species. Um, and those bristles and hairs are highly innervated at the base, so they detect the faintest movements uh, in, in the air. And often that's the first clue that danger is approaching and before the fly probably can even think about it. And yes, it does seem that flies can think. Uh, the body is already reacting mechanically to this oncoming insult, be it a fly swatter or something else. And so the fly is making evasive maneuvers probably before the fly realizes it. Uh, you know, when we touch a hot stove, we pull our hand away before we actually think of pulling our hand away. Uh, or when or when we blink automatically. I was actually watching a baseball game the other night on TV and I noticed the catcher and the slow motion replay. It, it can't help blinking when that ball comes in at, at 95 miles an hour. So, you know, there's, excuse me, there's some real parallels there between flies and humans. 
So we now, now let's get to their eyes. Uh, now we vertebrates have an eye that is essentially one unit. Whereas, I mean, if you ever, I mean, one thing maybe a lot of people have seen are these kind of magnifications of an insect's eye, a fly's eye. A, a fly's eye is this kind of multi-segmented kind of honeycomb-looking thing. So what's going on there? What what what's what's with all the segments? That's right. At some ancient time in evolutionary past, insect eyes went the root of, of, of a compound eye, which is a, a faceted eye where there's there's hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, depending on the species of, of independent eye structures, each with their own um, complete set of, of working parts to, to detect and process visual stimuli. Um, but, but you know, and I remember as an undergrad seeing an entomology textbook that um, sort of made the, the suspected or made the suggestion that the way an insect sees therefore is kind of a, a pointillist affair with a whole lot of little little not completely interwoven visual thing, themes uh, visual visuals pro, um, well vision um, scenes there you go that's a better word but but apparently it, it, you know one of the challenges here is how do we know exactly what's going on in another creature's perceptual world but it appears that they integrate those images. I mean, consider that we have two eyes. Granted, it's not very many, but it's still two eyes, two separate eyes. But we don't see two views when we open our eyes. We see them integrated into one whole. And, and it appears that, that fly brains and insect brains do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, you describe these uh, different teams of neurons working in concert. Some of them are motion-sensitive neurons uh, tracking the flow of objects that might be, you know, uh, apt to hurt or entice the fly. Uh, you've also got a thing that sort of tells the fly what it's doing uh, and the visual cues about its own self-motion. You've got another set of neurons analyzing the content of the visual scene itself, separating figures from the background uh, by detecting relative flow. Uh, this is called motion parallax. We're getting a little bit in the weeds here. But the point is, I don't know, we think about flies as these incredibly simple baseline rudimentary organisms well, there's like a lot going on there. There's a whole orchestra going on inside the fly. Yeah, as Ernst Younger put it, there are as many organs in a fly as in a leviathan or, or a whale. Uh, I love that sentiment. Nature is incredibly good at miniaturization. And uh, it's, it, it struck me as I worked on this book just time and again how much complexity and sophistication can be packed into a very, very small package. And and I, my sense is I take it that even having studied the flies every possible way that one could imagine, we don't really exactly know what everything in a fly is for, do we? It's considered the hard problem in science is is knowing or, or trying to know uh, the consciousness and the experiences of another of another creature. I mean, uh, we, we we humans have verbal reporting that we can make. We can tell each other how we're feeling. Of course, someone could be lying or someone could still be a robot from outer space. We obviously don't accept it that way. So that gives us a leg up on interpreting the feelings of other humans. But when it comes to other creatures, and of course, the further you move away from the human and on the evolutionary bush, uh, and I don't mean this to imply that flies are primitive. They're just more distant from us. We, we we branched out separate from them a long, long, long time ago, much longer ago than from fishes, say, or from monkeys, which are more recent because uh, more recent branching because they're simply closely related to us. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, um, so so yeah, that leaves us with that difficult challenge of trying to interpret what we see. But that doesn't mean we have to throw our hands up. Scientists are incredibly innovative and creative about ways to test things like attention span or, or you know, fear in, in another creature. 
So I want to come back to that in just a second because it's of great interest to me, and I, I know it's of great interest to you too. But uh, you know, the subtitle of Superfly is the unexpected lives of the world's most successful insects. Uh, what do you mean by successful? There, make make that case. Well, first of all, insects as a whole are incredibly successful. They make up about eighty percent of all animal species on planet Earth. Um, and among within the insects, you have groups like beetles and, and lepidoptera, butterflies and moths and flies and, and hymenoptera, ants, wasps and bees. Those, those are four, the four probably leaders of diversity. Um, it's currently, there's 160,000 species of flies described by humans. There's about a thousand new ones being described every year. And it's estimated that there's probably five times that many that we haven't even described yet. So we're talking incredible diversity. Flies are also very hardy and opportunistic. I think of them as the entrepreneurs of the animal world. And uh, they occur, they're the only insect to occur on all seven continents and their, and their habitats include things like wombat dung and petroleum oil. So that speaks a little bit to the, the opportunism and the diversity of this group of animals. Right. There's, a, by one estimate, about 17 million flies for each person. Um, so. Yeah, that's an estimate, and uh, but it's kind of telling. It's it speaks, and, and I think you know, there's, there's nobody. You can I can say with confidence, nobody's listening to this conversation who hasn't had a, a personal experience with flies, be it a housefly in the house or a mosquito out in the woods, because uh, mosquitoes are, are flies as well. Yeah, we should say that the order of flies. It's basically everything, every insect that flies with two wings as opposed to four, and isn't a beetle, right? That's right. The, the 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 Greek term diptera. I mean, the Greek is the root for diptera, diptera, two wings, uh, and that's what distinguishes the the flies from the other uh, orders of insects. So um, let's do one more sort of thing about the numerousness of, of flies. Uh, I thought the the sort of theoretical ball of the twenty fifth or twenty sixth generation uh, of fruit flies. Uh, I thought was a pretty mind numbing piece of statistics. Uh, sketch that out for people. What is it that I'm actually trying to describe there? Yeah, I remember reading that in, a, in, in my entomology textbook as an undergraduate student, and somebody did the math that if you took two fruit flies on January 1st of a hypothetical year, uh, they can get through about 25 generations in a year. And if nobody died uh, and you took just the, just the 25th generation and you packed those flies into a ball of flies at a density of about a thousand per, per cubic inch, I think it was something like that, a very, very dense ball of flies. That ball of flies would stretch from here to beyond the sun. So, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of incredible, right? I mean, Thank goodness it, for checks and balances. Yeah, it doesn't really seem possible somehow. But um, all right. So uh, we have to spend a little time here about flies making sexy, making sexy time. Maybe we'll save that for last. We'll talk about fly consciousness. The first thing that we can say is it does appear pretty clear that flies are learning in real time, even something as ephemeral as a fruit fly. Uh, in fact, in, in my house, we do do the thing that you mentioned in the book where you put, the, you put a couple of chunks of fruit uh, that are kind of past their prime in a little dish. You put a plastic a sheet of a plastic wrap over it, put some slits in the plastic wrap. The fruit flies go in and they can't get out. Although observationally, you discovered something about that, right? Yeah, they can get out. Uh, and when the, when their motivation to be in their wanes, maybe they've had their way with each other and, and laid eggs and what have you and done all that stuff, and it's time to move on, they can detect the uh, the chemical gradient from the the, the, the air outside that, that cellophane wrap. So uh, I've actually seen fruit flies 
muscling their way. It's the best way I can think of to put it is mus muscling their way through these these tiny little crevices. It seems so intentional, uh, and as it should, because what we know about flies uh, appears to support the idea that they're intentional, that they have cognition, uh, they have complex brains. They're not just a, a few a few nerve t nerve cells. So um, it, once again, it appears there's a lot more going on than we thought. All right. So yeah, let's go to the hard problem. Uh, so you. You sort of make an argument that I think you say, if that's not consciousness, I don't know what is. Uh, so, so make that case. Make the case that a, a fly could have some approximation of consciousness. I mean, we should say, uh, I mean, the, the ultimate reference point here probably is Thomas Nagel's famous essay, What It's Like to Be a Bat, which is not about what it would be like for us to be a bat. It's, like, it's about what it's like for a bat to be a bat. So we have to think about what it's like for a fly to be a fly. And, and so make the argument that that might include some consciousness. Well, it appears that food and sex are certainly high priorities for them. Uh, an example I'll give you, studies done by a research team in, uh, in Australia, University of Sydney, I believe it was, they, they wanted to look to see if a fly, had, and this is using a fruit fly, which is the most studied animal in the world, uh, to see if they have an attention span. And so they, they, they tether them so the fly can't fly away, but the fly can fly in one spot, is facing forward, and they're inside a rotating drum. And the scientists can put different symbols on the inside of the drum that rotate around. And so the fly sees the symbol every few seconds. And they put electrodes in the fly's head, and they detect the burst of activity in the brain whenever, the new sim whenever a symbol goes by. But as, as, as a hallmark of attention span is, is sort of loss, loss of attention as, as things don't get new. So the, the same symbols coming by every few seconds, the, the activity in the brain starts to wane each time. And then you put a new symbol, you go from an X to an O, say, and then there's a new burst of activity. The fly is engaged again because, oh, look, something's new in my visual field. Another hallmark of attention span is, is, not, is being distracted and not noticing things, say, in your peripheral vision. And in that situation, if you put a picture of another fly or something that might be interesting normally to that fly in their, in the, off to the side so they can see it, they, they don't pay attention to it if they're, if they're engaged with a new stimulus. But if they get bored, they will you know, more likely notice that. So these are some of the hallmarks of having an attention span. So yeah, we need to talk uh, briefly about what happens when uh, two flies decide that they love each other very much. Um, and um, first of all, I mean, they, you know, they have often rather complex equipment for demonstrating that tremendous love they feel for one another. Tell, tell us about flies making sexy time. Yeah, equipment and behavior. Uh, foreplay in flies, I mean, it depends on the species, but you can watch YouTube videos of flies uh, sp um, flapping their wings in certain ways. They make Some of these flies make very hard to hear for us, but they, nevertheless, they make these these songs or serenades uh, with their wing beats. They vary the wing beats. They, they use the wings sometimes like a semaphore display where they, they flip one wing up and they dance around and males compete and they fight and they get on their hind legs and box each other again depending on the species but they also woo females and females are very choosy often uh, some flies uh, the dance flies are famous for their gift giving and they may some species will actually wrap the, the gift which is a, an insect they've caught and give it to the female uh, that that serves two purposes it probably hopefully pleases the female so he may be able to mate with her but also it preoccupies her because she's usually bigger than him and she's predatory and may may try and eat him as her next meal 
There's complex genitalia, which are also useful by scientists to try and identify new species. And sometimes they have to rotate 180 times for correct interlocking or docking of the sexual organs. It's a pretty complex, uh, varied field out there for fly sex. Yes, and, uh, and some flies also um, prolong sex. I think it's love bugs in particular, right? It will pl- prolong uh, their sex act for, what, many, many days? It can be days. Uh, the record for insects is, I think, 59 days for stick insects, but uh, the, the, the love bugs can go three or four days, I believe, in coitus. Uh, that's also probably a, a strategy for the male to reduce competition. Obviously, if he's, if he's in place all that time, no other male is going to get a chance. And the love bugs are kind of famous for being often seen coupled together when when people see them in the wild. Right, I think a sting can go for two or three days too. But um, but and, and when they're coupled, sometimes they are coupled at what looks to be a pretty precarious angle. First of all, it looks like maybe one bug with a head on each end, but they're sort of dangling in very precarious ways. Yeah, I just I I found this um, years ago. I, I I noticed this, and it was interesting to read about it years later when I was researching this book. I saw a couple of horseflies on a sign while I was out hiking, birding, and uh, the horsefly facing up, who turns out to in this case to have been the male, although it can be roles can be reversed, was you know as usual feet on the sign, of course. Uh, but the female who was attached by the genitalia had rotated at 180 degrees, so she was her feet were dangling out in the air. Uh, it looks like a pretty awkward, uncomfortable, rather compromised position for sex. Um, but I guess when your sex comes in 50 shades of brown, you come up with some uh, com- some clever ideas. All right. We're going to take a break in just a second here. Some of the things we really will, won't have time to talk about are the fact that uh, flies are kind of custodians of the world. They clean up a lot of poop. They clean up a lot of dead bodies. They're actually uh, very important pollinators. And, and very interestingly, too, as Jonathan Balcom points out in his book, Superfly, they also, just by being flies, keep people out of places that people would otherwise despoil, important ecosystems and environments where if people went in, they would mess up everything. But they don't because there's so many flies. Uh, All right. Flies also, I have to say this, flies, as it turns out, fart very quietly. These are the kinds of things you'll learn about if you get Jonathan's book and read it. But we have a whole bunch of other things we need to talk about on the other side of this. Up in the morning when the dew is on the dew And I date a little maggot named Mary Lou Someday we'll get married and we won't think twice When our kids all look like dancing rice I think I'll land on some horse manure Think I'll land on the poop du jour Think I'll land on a squash possum And then I'll land on your potato salad Just washing up Buzz, buzz, buzz Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
All right. So we are talking about flies today, and we are doing so with Jonathan Balcom, uh, the author of Superfly, The Unexpected Lives of the World's Most Successful Insects. Now joining me and Jonathan, one of our favorite guests. Uh, she's usually here in the studio with us, but of course, pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. Dr. Gail Rich, Associate Scientist at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station in New Haven. Uh, Dr. Gail Ridge, welcome back to our show. It's a delight to be back. So um, I want you to quickly tell us about a case that you worked on, and Jonathan can maybe, you should pardon the expression, flesh out uh, the role that flies do play in this regard. This is an actual murder case where you were brought in to establish a time frame. Explain what you, as a forensic entomologist, would be doing in that situation. Well, basically, um, we're, or a forensic entomologist, uh, tea leaf reads Flies. In other words, I'm reading their biology. They're very time sensitive and temperature sensitive, and their development is completely hooked to uh, that aspect. So, for instance, um, a fly can develop from an egg to an adult in 10 days at the temperatures of 85 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, 21 days at 70 degrees Fahrenheit, 45 days at 60. It's very precise timing. And so when a body is um, discovered, you have what is called the post-mortem interval. That's from the time the body is discovered back to when the eggs were first laid on the body and exposed. Following that time, taking note of the location, the time of year, what the species are in that area, um, will give you an approximate time of possibly when the uh, victim was murdered. Right. And in so, this particular case, we got back to within about 12 hours of when it was thought that she was murdered. Right. And this is yeah, using uh, maggots that were third in star larvae of the black blowfly, if you're yeah. keeping score uh, at home there. So, Jonathan, this isn't that unusual, right? This is something that um, that has been around for a while, maybe even dating back to 10th century China. Yeah, there's some historic cases uh, where fly evidence was used a long time ago. Obviously, the, the science and the art of it has advanced greatly since then. And uh, Dr. Gail Anderson, another Gail forensic entomologist, who Gail Ridge probably knows, uh, who I interviewed for the book, uh, you know, was telling me about some of the cases she's she's worked on, and she said that I think the number of forensic entomologists board certified is growing very rapidly now, and has doubled in the last decade or so. So let's uh, talk about a more therapeutic uh, application uh, of uh, flies and specifically their uh, maggots. Uh, Gail, you may have saved a man's life using green blowfly maggots. Tell us about yes. that. Yes, he was. He and his wife uh, were regular visitors to um, the insect information office here in New Haven. And um, he was admitted into hospital on a, a number of occasions. And on one occasion when his wife visited him, she found a maggot dining on his toe. Um, he had diabetes and he had some severe infections in his foot and his toes, uh, including MRSA. And so she brought the maggot to me and it turned out to be a second instar, second stage uh, green blowfly maggot. Um, as a result of that uh, discovery, the attending physician um, agreed with my suggestion that we should uh, try the maggots. Everything else had failed. All the therapies, the surgeries had failed. 
and he was looking to definitely uh, have toe amputation, foot amputation, and the way the infection was developing, it could be a threat to his life. So um, we reached out to a laboratory in Chicago and they air lifted um, a population of um, green blowfly sterile maggots. These were delivered to the hospital. His foot was then caged with the maggots. He said the sensations of the nibbling away was very peculiar. <laughs> um, probably one of the very few people can actually describe the sensation. But what they, they do is their, their secretions um, affect healing, increase circulation, and sterilize the area. And they're like minute surgeons. So they could nibble their way into areas which we couldn't physically reach. And they'll only abrade damaged or decaying tissue. And once they reached healthy tissue, they would stop. So this little population got busy and fixed him up and were removed five days later and left hospital hospital um, 10 days later perfectly fine. You know, uh, Jonathan Gale said that this person was one of the few people who could describe that sensation. Uh, on a smaller level, at a four maggot level, you're actually another one of those people, right? Well, I've certainly, unfortunately, I've never had a, a, a severe uh, intractable wound that required maggot therapy, although I think it's a wonderful um, branch of medicine that people should know about and has a very important role to play. I, I did play host to an African skin maggot, which is um, a, a kind of species that actually practices the art of what we call myiasis, which is the, the situation of having a, a fly larva actually living inside your flesh. This is eating healthy flesh. This is quite different from what Gail just described. Uh, but yeah, I was on a research team studying bats in South Africa in Kruger Park uh, many, many years ago. And what I thought were four mosquito bites on my chest turned out to be moving. I noticed they were moving one day during lunch. So I'd read about uh, bot flies, which are a lot bigger than these ones. Uh, but uh, I realized this is a cousin or this is another fly that that uh, likes to get inside you. Uh, and so I was told how to remove them with some Vaseline applied to their breathing hole and you squeeze them out like little grains of rice, which is what was the outcome. Um, actually, Gail is no stranger to the botfly or to infestations of that type. Well, she may be kind of a stranger to them, but she's dealt with them. Tell us about the poor man who was mowing his lawn and was in for a terrible surprise. Yes, he was certainly ha he had a big surprise. Uh, yes, he was mowing his lawn um, a couple of years ago, um, and uh, he it was it was brushy on the edge of the lawn, and he pushed his mower into this brush. Um, to clear the undergrowth, which had kind of grown up because he just bought this house. This was in Middlebury. And then um, a, about a month or so later, um, he had a lung suddenly and unexpectedly collapse to 30% of its uh, volume and was rushed into hospital. The doctors corrected the problem. But then again, a few days later, he had to go to a dermatologist because he had these peculiar uh, lesions in two locations on his back. They excised these uh, lesions and found two second stage or second instar uh, bot fly maggots. He came to me, I did the identification, they turned out to be rabbit bots. All right, then he developed a cough about, um, 10 days later, and he started to cough at midnight and coughed and coughed and coughed until four o'clock. And he coughed up 
another maggot. And it was the third stage rabbit botfly maggot. So um, bots, what the, the story is, the narrative is that botfly, um, rabbit botflies will lay their eggs or place their eggs on foliage in the area where the rabbits are. And he just got a new colony of rabbits in the backyard. As soon as there's contact with the eggs, they instantaneously hatch and the maggots will then make their way across the skin up through the nasal passages and down into the lungs, then migrate across the body to the back at which they then develop. Okay, so two managed to make the trip, but the third one we suspect got lost and may have punctured the lung causing a partial collapse of the lung. <laughs> Extremely rare. <laughs> good, good. Actually, uh, <laughs> Cat Pastor just uh, texted, this is why I don't go outside. All right, so we, we are going to have to do something that I don't like to do, is to say, which is to say goodbye to Dr. Gail Ridge. We will have her back uh, very soon, though. She is a Absolutely. cherished uh, part of our show. Uh, we are going to take a little shift here. Jonathan is still with us. We're not going to a break either. Uh, instead, we are going to be joined by John Knuth, as promised, uh, an artist. His work is part of Reunion, a group exhibition at the Hollis Taggart, uh, or at Hollis Taggart, excuse me, in Southport, Connecticut. It will be showing until September 4th. Um, I just paid a lot of money for a Hunter Biden. It turns out I could have had a Knuth <laughs> and it, it, I would have been better off because it would be right on point for uh, this show. So first of all, uh, John Knuth, welcome to our conversation. Oh, thank you. This is such a fabulous topic. And I'm uh, Jonathan, I'm so excited to dig into your book. <laughs> you, you are going to enjoy it a lot. So uh, explain, uh, yeah, I guess we are, as my producer Jonathan McPants put it out, going to have to open up a whole can of worms, so to speak, to talk about uh, how it is that, that you do what you do. I, explain how you're creating these really fascinatingly textured effects on your paintings. Right. So, so the process is, 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 is very fascinating. So I raise hundreds of thousands of flies to make paintings for me, and I limit their diet to acrylic paint mixed with sugar water. And as it's been discussed, flies have proboscises and they're in a constant state of regurgitation. And so um, with limiting their food source to uh, acrylic paint, um, every time a fly or the fly species I'm using, there's a chance that they could uh, leave a fly speck behind. So you see these on your kitchen window all the time, um, you know, this little brown speck. And so when you hyper condense them, um, um, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of flies at a time, uh, you, you can make something really transcendent happens. So the paint colors become true to the color. If I feed them a bright red, the speck is a bright red. Uh, if it's a bright blue, the speck is a bright blue. And I can hyper condense them and then they disperse across the canvas. And so imagine millions of little spots of paint, you know, uh, sort of abstract pointillism that oftentimes looks like uh, transcendent sunsets or uh, uh, transcendent uh, sunrises. Right. I, I mean, there are videos available. It's really kind of fascinating to look at them. I mean, it really looks very planned. Uh, and I guess from a certain point of view, it, it is. Um, just to sort of help people understand what's happening here, I wish we had a sort of a special kind of effort. Oh, expert. I think I think we do have an expert to explain this. Uh, let's play B1, Cap. How does Brundle fly eat? Well, he found out the hard and painful way that he's very much the way a fly eats. His teeth are now useless because although he can chew up solid food, he can't digest it. Solid food hurts. So, like a fly, Brundlefly breaks down solids with a corrosive enzyme, playfully called vomit drop. He regurgitates on his food, it liquefies, and then he sucks it back up. 
Ready for a demonstration, kids? Here it goes. So that, of course, is Jeff Goldblum. He wanted to be on today's show. We don't have time for him. But, um, but John Knuth, um, I'll ask you the question that everybody asks you. How did you think of this? How did it occur to you that you wanted to work in this particular medium? So I, 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 I should, you know, I, I was raised, you know, catching snakes and looking at Andy Warhol books, right? So those are sort of my two passions are art and science, biology, and how the world works. And so the first project I did with flies was in uh, 2001, and it was the buildup to the second Iraq war. And I had read this, read this article that said the order Diptera, so flies, mosquitoes, et cetera, are responsible for more suffering than all wars combined. So you think mosquitoes, malaria, flies, foodborne pathogens, et cetera. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder if I can make my own little fly biological warfare air force. And so I was catching flies outside my apartment in the dumpster and I was tying, uh, uh, hair around the fly's neck and then cutting little paper airplanes out of cigarette paper and the flies were flying around. They were living sculptures and sort of flying like world, drunk World War II fighter pilots. And so the idea was like a little biological warfare air force. And, you know, the thing I noticed was the fly speck and I would catch the flies in buckets. And as an artist, you, 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 you sort of hold ideas and think like, I'll get back to that idea. And so that fly speck really struck me. And a decade later, I, uh, it, it occurred to me like, well, that's a mark. That's, that's an artwork, right? That, that's a miniature paint mark. And so as I worked with them, the first paintings I made, uh, I was feeding the flies, you know, Taco Bell and McDonald's and, you know, cheese. And I was getting brown, you know, trying to reiterate the nastiness of the fly. And then as I started working with this, I realized the transcendent quality is what's really special about this. And so you're taking a non-social insect, you're, uh, hypercondensing them and they're doing something outside of their nature. They're working together to create something collaboratively, not collaboratively intentionally, but through my sort of contraptions, creating something outside of their nature, which is, is, is really sort of remarkably beautiful. All right. Now, Jonathan Balcom may be bristling, you should pardon the expression, uh, at the term, the nastiness uh, uh, of the fly. In fact, one thing that sort of gets said, I don't know if it gets said a lot, but it does get uh, said and it came up a lot in connection with, in fact, uh, the Jeff Goldblum movie about the flies, that is that whole idea of they, they vomit onto their food. And Jonathan, you are at pains to make a distinction here. So we should probably make that distinction. Jonathan, you still with us? Nope. He might, he might have gone. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I somehow oh, got muted there. Sorry. That's all right. Um, sorry. Yeah. Uh, you can hear me now? Yes, absolutely. Explain the distinction. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I, I just take, I take issue with that, the use of that word. I mean, it's a, it's a colorful word, the word vomit, and it makes us, it conjures up all kinds of things. I'm happy to say I haven't vomited since I was 13. And I think part of that is because it was such, it's such an awful experience. Um, and I, I don't think Flies are experiencing something awful when they when they regurgitate liquid onto food stuff to make it imbibable. So that's that's my quibble with the term with the term vomit in that context. Because they're yeah they're not actually puking up something that they've previously ingested, right? Yes, and and they're also not feeling sick, as far as I can tell, anyway. All right. Well, the the paintings anyway are anything but nasty, and they're fascinating. And I love what you've done with the sur- these kind of egg shaped surfaces too. People should uh, get on uh, get online, uh, look up. You can just sort of Google John Knuth. It's K N U T H. The Dawn at Hollis Taggart is one of the videos, and uh, these are amazing amazing things. So first of all, thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, first of all, Jonathan ba- Balcom, and also to John Knuth. Thank you so much for doing the show. Thanks for having me.
Colin. All right. So we are going to take uh, another break here. And when we come back, we did say, we did we felt it was necessary to save some time here just to talk about even though we just told Jeff Goldblum, look, we won't have time for you, but we, we felt like we should talk about this movie a little bit. Okay, real quick because this is this is a this has been a high speed train all the way through. Uh, but Cat uh, Pastor is as usual our technical producer doing a great job for us there. The uh, episode was produced by Jonathan McPants, who had some kind of uh, special fly. What kind of fly did you have? He had a fly in his office, a special kind of fly, uh, kind of bothering him while he was producing the show. Is the point? Uh, I should also say that uh, we will at least link to some of the work of John Knuth, the uh, painter, uh, on our show page, which is, which is at ctpublic.org. Org slash Colin. All the Colin McEnroe show episodes are there. And if you know somebody else who might be interested in this, I mean, we are a podcast. You can get the Colin McEnroe show on essentially any podcast platform. So this show will go up very soon there, too. All right. So uh, time to uh, <laughs> uh, time to uh, tackle kind of our, our last topic here. Uh, and to do that, uh, let's once again remind you uh, of um, uh, of the subject matter. So let's hear C1, Cat. Insects don't have politics. They're very brutal. No compassion. No compromise. We can't trust the insect. I'd like to become the first insect politician you see, I'd like to, um, but, oh, I'm afraid, um... I don't know what you're trying to say. I'm saying... I'm saying I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it. But now the dream is over and the insect is awake. No, sir. I'm saying, I'll hurt you this day. That, of course, uh, is Jeff Goldblum, is Seth Brundle, Gina Davis as Veronica Quaif. Uh, the movie is The Fly, which was released, believe it or not, 35 years ago this past Sunday, uh, Friday, August 15th, 1986. That's why all the, all the celebrations you've been seeing are all about. Joining us right now is Jacob Trussell, the author of The Binge Watcher's Guide to the Twilight Zone. His latest piece for Film School Rejects is Only Jeff Goldblum Could Make Us Fall in Love with The Fly, published this week. It just so happens. Jacob Trussell, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So, um, first of all, I think there's sort of two conjoined questions here. One of them would be, why do the fly? I mean, it could be any small thing. Why pick a fly? And then another one would be, why pick Jeff Goldblum to do this? So let's start with the first one. Why do you suppose David Cronenberg or, well, actually, obviously, it's a remake. It's been around for a while. Why the persistent image of the fly? It could be lots of little tiny things. Yeah, I think that there is like a very 
surface level reading that the fly is a nod to Kafka's metamorphosis, but clearly they're not going to retread in exactly what Kafka was doing. So they decided in the original George Langeland short story to do this fly. And it has plenty of uh, psychological and psychiatric uh, readings that you can put into it. But I think because, um, you know, the cockroach is so disgusting and grotesque already, we already have this um, feeling of disdain for them. When a cockroach comes flying into your room, you are going to lose it a little bit more than if a basic common fly comes in. So, you know, in, when we're seeing a, a human cockroach, we are coming from a similar place of, uh, of known fear. And when we see a human fly, it's almost a, a fear that we maybe didn't know we had. So, uh, um, yes, well, we've actually discussed uh, uh, Gregor Samsa's metamorphosis in the past on this show. So we're, we're with you 100% on this. But there's something about Jeff Goldblum, too. First of all, it could be argued, and I think you do argue, this is kind of the movie that began to make Jeff Goldblum Jeff Goldblum. So say why that would be. Oh, yeah, I, I completely agree. This was the one of his first really big star making star turn roles that uh, he had had. He had been in um, clearly plenty of, of other films starting from Death Wish uh, through to Philip Kaufman's remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But this was the first time that he really had the opportunity to engage with a character that engaged with everything that we sort of now take for granted from Jeff Goldblum all of the the strange little ticks and quirks and, and, and neurotic uh, tendencies that we've come to really appreciate in his performances now. And this was the first time that we really got a great big picture of the type of characters that he can build. And it was, you know, even more impressive that he was able to do this beneath layers upon layers of prosthetics. I think the other thing that's interesting about this, from my point of view anyway, I think Joel, Jeff Goldblum has become, in particular, an actor who in a lot of his performances has that ability to both be inside a movie and a little bit out of it, kind of talking to us in the audience, winking at us uh, a, a little tiny bit or winking uh, at the movie. And and even as he started out in the first, some of the early things that we saw him, there was a sense in which his character in The Big Chill was a little bit, little bit different from all, all the other characters. And even in Independence Day, you know, he's got that kind of, I mean, he's facing global extinction, but he's got that kind of neurotic kind of meta narrative going on all the time about yeah. what he's saying. But there's sort of no messing around, as I haven't seen The Fly in a while. But I feel like in The Fly, like he's just really dealing with some very, very heavy and uh, unpleasant and frightening stuff kind of appropriately. But you, you would know better. Yeah, no, I, I, I believe that there is a, an easy reading of The Fly as a um, representation of man's hubris turned grotesque. Uh, and I think that because he had such maybe not difficult subject matter, but so dire and dark, this just evolution with inside of him that he uh, never anticipated or intended for himself to have through his experimentation. But through that experimentation, he finds a way to approach that subject matter from a different angle than what uh, another actor may have done if they were just trying to play this complicated, complex series of conflicting emotions that are going, you know, ping-ponging around in Brundle's head 
throughout the course of this film. Um, but because he is able to take a different angle from it and try and find a new sense of purpose in his transformation, that it uh, energizes his entire performance and makes us want to see exactly where he goes, even as he is disintegrating and mutating in front of our eyes. Right. I mean, that's the clip that we just played. I, I remember that. I don't remember everything about this movie, but uh, I remember that as being this incredibly searing, kind of heart-wrenching scene when he's saying to Gina Davis, you can't be here. You can't stay around here because I might hurt you. Uh, I mean, to me, that's the, the the movie's hardest pivot is right there. The sense that he is now going to lose all humanity, even the little piece of humanity he loves the most. And I feel like that's what really connects it to some of the greater monster films from uh, definitely the Universal days and from when uh, the original The Fly came out in 1958. This very tragic figure, almost uh, arguably Shakespearean in scope of the emotions that he uh, he really has to go through. And by making us completely empathize and sympathize with what he's going through as he is pushing Veronica out of his life just makes us, uh, it, it, it ingratiates with us even more. And we feel uh, his loss, we feel Veronica's loss. And because Jeff Goldblum is so uh, engaging of a performer to watch, it in some ways makes it feel like we are losing a, a loved one of our own. We're really seeing it through Veronica's eyes because of how realistic and lived in Goldblum is, especially in that moment and in that scene, which is so poetic in its tragedy. Yeah. I think the fact that he wasn't a gigantic movie star at that point is helpful too. You know, it's just, he's more like us really. Oh, absolutely. And it allows him to uh, really kind of uh, enjoy being completely hidden behind this makeup and being all goopy and gross and, and melting and, and all of those little things. Uh, and the fact that he is able to make us enjoy that experience is uh, a testament to him in that moment in his life and career. All right. So Jacob Trussell uh, is his latest piece for Film School Rejects is only Jeff Goldblum could make us fall in love with the fly. Uh, we, uh, of course, Jeff Goldblum was going to be on the show today. We just don't have time. I'm really sorry. Maybe uh, let's can we try to rebook Jeff Goldblum maybe a couple of weeks out? I think that'd be nice. Uh, all right. Thanks to everybody who helped out today with this very peculiar show. But boy, we covered just about everything we wanted to cover. And there's still like, so much. Balcom's book is pretty incredible. You should you should read it. <laughs> 